Take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 13. That's where we are. Once again, John 13, we're in a series of messages looking at the events of the night that Jesus was betrayed. Here's the key concept for this morning. We are called to live out the obligations of love. Jesus calls us to live out the obligations of love. We can be easily reminded in our society today that people are almost desperate for connection. People need to be loved. And the lack of that is causing an anxiety in a level that's unheard of all around uh, in our society today. John Ferrier is a journalist who reports about trends on, on and online issues. And he once reported about a person who, by way of experiment, created the worst, most obnoxious and utterly horrible online dating profile to see what would happen. It was a totally bogus profile of an imaginary woman who, when writing about herself, expressed the most horrible, bigoted, hateful, selfish attitudes that you could imagine. Under the category of, what do you do on a typical Friday evening, she wrote, I like to go out and knock the cups out of homeless people's hands. The post ended with this, I am a goddess and I do me, in capital letters. Totally off-putting on every level. That post got 150 romantic inquiries. Wow. We are a needy people. It seems we are desperate for love. And God knows that. And that is why in our passage today, we will see that as God's people demonstrate love, Jesus tells us that this will be an attractional force towards the gospel. We'll pick up the reading in verse 33 of chapter 13. Jesus is speaking and he says this, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus, the greatest example of love the world has ever seen, is about to leave. Very soon on the horizon will come the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, as he will return to his Father in heaven. And the question is, how then will the world see love? How how will the example be evident? And Jesus says, the world will see love in my followers, in my disciples. If you truly love one another, this is going to be a megaphone of communication to the world that you belong to me. And he calls this a new command. The question is, of course, in what way is this new? We see the call to love running all through the Scriptures. Way back in the Old Testament, it is commanded of us in Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The call to love seemingly is nothing new. But the newness of the command of Jesus is the example Moses writes, love others 
as you love yourself. And Jesus has quoted that verse in his teaching in the past. Back in Mark chapter 12, part of the great command, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength and love others as you love yourself. That has been Jesus' teaching in the past. But in the closing moments of his time with the disciples, there is a, a, an uh, upping of the ante, so to speak. It's a new level of love that's called for it, prompted by a new power with new significance and a new example. The example of love is not as you love yourself. The example is as I, Jesus, have loved you. A whole new example with new power. And he has demonstrated that love. Moments before these words, he has washed their feet. And he will demonstrate that love again. Very soon, he will give himself to die as a substitute for us. The point is, Jesus' example is self-giving love. It is humble love. It is vulnerable love. And that's the way that we are to treat one another after his model and his example. And that, he says, when you're doing it, will be the clarion call that communicates to the world that you belong to Christ. That's what they will see. Now, the Apostle John is sitting in the room listening to these words, and he's taking it all in, and he's, he's tuning in to what Jesus is saying, so much so that years later, when he writes his epistles, he writes in 1 John 4, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Love God and, and love for one another. These two aspects of love go together. And the love of God is the motivating force that gives impulse to our actions of loving one another. And when Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, be convinced that he's not talking about, I want you to have a vague, vaguely warm feeling towards each other. I want you to have goodwill towards each other. That's not what he's saying, because he has just gotten up from washing their feet. He's talking about action. I want you to take action of love. What does it look like? Well, it looks like exactly what the Apostle Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Agape love. It was a rare word in the Greek language at the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 13. It wasn't often used. We're used to it because we hear it a lot from the Bible. But outside of the Bible, you hardly ever encounter that word in Greek usage in the first century. But Paul used it over and over again because it is a self-giving kind of love in action. Now, Jerry Bridges, the author, has taken 1 Corinthians 13 and reworked it to demonstrate the action. And it reads this way. He says, I am patient with you because I love you and I want to forgive you. I am kind to you because I love you and I want to help you. I do not envy your possessions or your gifts because I love you and I want you to have the best. I do not boast about my attainments because I love you and I want to hear about yours. I am not proud because I love you and I want to esteem you before myself. 
I am not rude because I love you and I care about your feelings. I am not self-seeking because I love you and I want to meet your needs. I am not easily angered by you because I love you and I want to overlook your offenses. I do not keep records of wrongs because I love you and love covers a multitude of sins. That kind of love gives glory to God and that kind of love will be noticed in a world that does not love that way. But there are obstacles to that kind of love. The psychologist Eric Fromm has written, most people see the problem of love primarily as that of being loved rather than loving. In other words, an obstacle to truly loving one another the way that Christ wants us to love and the way that would look attractive to the world is that it's very scary to be that vulnerable. It's very scary to be the one who loves first, the one who first gives, the one who first serves, the one who first steps in to meet a need. What if I'm taken advantage of? What if it doesn't go well? Well, it's just safer just to wait. And then once it's obviously obvious that I'm being loved, then I am able to love. It's scary to love first. The thing is, Jesus knows that about us. And so he reassures us that he has always loved us first. First John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. That obstacle has been taken away. That obstacle has been dealt with. That, that idea of the vulnerability of being first. It's all, it's already been dealt with. You are already loved. Thus, you have the security in Jesus to give love to others. But there's a second obstacle that we'll note. And that is the obstacle of loving myself above all else. Right? You've heard the song. It was a big hit for Whitney Houston. Remember, the greatest love of all is happening to me. The greatest of love of all is easy to achieve. Learning to love yourself, it's the greatest love of all. No, it's not. There's nothing wrong with positive self-image. There's nothing wrong with a positive self-esteem. And I want you to understand that God wants you to have positive self-esteem because the gospel message is the most positive self-esteem message in the world. The gospel message says the God who created all that is loves you. The God that created all that is sees you as a person worth dying for. And we needed him to do that because left to ourselves, we are lost. But the greatest love of all is his love for us and our love for him, which prompts us to love others. These two obstacles kind of work in tandem. If you do not understand that you're already loved, you cannot love another. And if you don't understand that you, you're, you can be blinded by self-love, you will not love others. But there is a middle way. There is the Christian way, the Christian view of love. And it's disarmingly simple. It is this. God loves me enough to die for me. Thus, I have worth in his sight. So... I do not need to prove my worth. I can concentrate on loving others. That's the formula that Jesus wants us to keep in mind. 
the Christian view of self, sinner saved by grace, the grace of a loving Lord, valuable in His sight, allows us the freedom to love one another, to obey Christ's command. That's the mission that we're on. And that mission brings some obligations. These new commands from Jesus call some things from us. Now, these are not the only obligations, but here are the obligations that I thought of as I was reading this passage. It's the obligation of action and not just intention. Because so often we mean well, we intend to do things, but we never really do it. Would you be pleased if John 3.16 read this way? For God so loved the world that he sat in heaven and intended to one day getting to get around to sending Jesus, his one and only son. Would that be good news? No one's going to get excited about that. But we do get excited that God so loved the world that he sent his son. Love acts. Jesus was very confrontational with his followers on this point. You got to act. Don't just mean to act. That's what he means when he says this command, as I have loved you. There has been an action that has just taken place. Because we need to understand that to the eyes of God, the proof of our salvation, when He looks at us, the, it, uh, the proof of our salvation is that He sees in us the transformation that He has made by His grace within your heart. He sees that. But Jesus is understanding, to, uh, is, is saying, the eyes of human beings can't see that. The proof of salvation is the way that that transformation that God has caused in your heart causes you to love others. That's what people can see. They can't see it any other way. In fact, let's turn the picture for a moment. Let's imagine that instead of Jesus talking about this to his disciples, and by extension us, that Jesus is actually talking to the world out there about his disciples and us. Jesus is essentially saying this, I give you permission to evaluate who is a true disciple of mine and who is not. And the basis of the evaluation is how they love one another. How would the world possibly make that evaluation if we simply were called to have warm feelings of best regard towards one another. They would never be able to make that evaluation. They can't see on the inside. The evaluation can only be made by looking for the actions that love requires. And that's what Jesus is showing us. There is an obligation to act. Don't just intend to act. Don't just think about acting. Don't just sit on the sidelines and say, somebody ought to do something loving around here. Love acts. And we are called to act. Jesus does not give us wiggle room on that issue. Another obligation of love is to last. The obligation of duration. The love that Jesus calls us to is not a sprint or a flash-in-the-pan relationship. Love is a marathon. It's for the long haul. And real love has staying power through thick and thin. I speak to husbands and wives here today. Let me tell you what you must do. You must last. You must speak out loud to one another that you are closing the door of divorce in your relationship. 
You need to look at one another in the eye and say, listen, whatever problems we face, we will need to learn how to solve them because divorce is not an option here. Love is for the long haul. The going will be tough, but it will be remarkable how you'll be able to handle the problems if you determine in advance that door is closed. So if we need to go to counseling, if we need to get advice, whatever we need to do, we're going to do. Not with the intention of, well, this better work out or I'm gone, but with the intention of, since I'm staying, this will will have to work out. That changes the way we relate. Why? Because love lasts. And the same is true in the church, quite frankly. Love is meant to last here. People will let you down. The church is filled with people, and we're all people in progress. We make mistakes, and we grow, and sometimes the circumstances will be challenging and even disappointing. But we are called to love as Jesus loved. And that last bit, sometimes we will be disappointed, but we're still called to love. That circles us back to Peter. Because Peter is listening to this just like John is listening to this. But notice Peter's reaction. Verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, Where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, Will you really lay down your life for me? I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Do you see how disconnected Peter's comments are to what Jesus has just been saying? Peter is in the room listening to all of this love stuff, just like John was in the room. And when he gets a moment, he turns the conversation back to what Jesus was talking about before he was giving his command. He's been playing that statement of verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. That's what's been playing over and over in his mind. This, the rest of the teaching about the new command to love one another and representing Jesus well, all that has just been like a buzzing noise all around him. He's not tuned into that conversation at all like John did. But when there is a pause, maybe somebody takes a breath, Peter chimes up, hey, where are you going anyway? And why can't we follow? He goes back to what Jesus was saying before. Is it because you don't think we're good enough? Is it because you don't think we're brave enough? I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm totally willing. And I don't want you to miss the connection between this exchange between Peter and Jesus and Jesus' command to love as he loves. This level of love, the example that they must now follow, is we're going to see that Jesus loves Peter even though Peter fails him. That's the example of Christ. Fast forward to the small hours of the morning, of of Thursday, uh, Thursday night into Friday morning. Jesus has been arrested. He's taken to the house of the high priest. Most of the disciples have scattered, and they're nowhere to be found, and Peter is following at a distance. And by the time Peter catches up to where Jesus has been taken, Jesus is already inside the building. But outside, there's a courtyard where people are warming themselves around a fire. And Peter thinks no one will recognize him. He goes up to warm himself as well. And a servant girl who's there says, Hey, you were with that Nazarene 
Then Peter thinks fast and says, I don't even know him. Dodged a bullet there, he thinks. But then another person was looking at him closely, and he says, aren't you one of his disciples? I am not, Peter says. And he's starting to think coming here was a bad idea. But he lays low for a while, an hour passes, and light begins to filter in as the sunrise is happening. And someone recognizes him again. A third person says, hey, I saw you in the olive grove. And Peter is beginning to figure out that this playing it cool kind of routine is not working. This guy was at the arrest, and with curses, he denies that he knows Jesus. And then the rooster crows. John puts it this way. Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, the rooster began to crow. What were Peter's mistakes? Mistake number one, he didn't tune in to Jesus' call to extraordinary love. He wasn't really paying attention to the lesson because he was thinking about the announcement. Secondly, he didn't appreciate his own weakness, even though Jesus pointed it out. And thirdly, he doubted Jesus' word, his prediction, you will deny me. And now he knows that it was all true. But he also knows this. Through all of this, Jesus is loving Peter. Through the fear, through the failure, through the disappointment that he feels in Peter's denial, Jesus still loves him. And never again will Peter stand up and pridefully boast of courage that he doesn't really have. Never again will Peter assert himself in this way because he's been changed now towards humility, not bravado. And how do I know that Peter has been changed by these events? Because these events are in the Bible. How else would it have gotten here? Only Peter would reveal it. And in fact, Peter did reveal it. He did not hide his mistake, and he must have repeated it over and over. These events, this denial by Peter is in every one of the Gospels. He's the one who's talking about it because he has learned the message that we need to learn. You are greatly loved, so you need not hide. You are greatly loved, so you need not pretend. You are greatly loved. Even though you fail, you are greatly loved. So you can love one another. And we must, because this is the way the world will know that we are His. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would take a moment and look at ourselves. Where in our lives are there more opportunities to do the deeds of love. Give us courage. Lord, give us a willingness to be vulnerable. And we pray, Lord, that you would make us more and more like you in this area. And as you do, we pray, Lord, that the world will see Jesus in us and know that we are yours. Help us in that way, we pray. In your name we ask it. Amen.